This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. One of Denver's most charming blocks, Larimer Square, was saved from the wrecking ball more than 50 years ago because of Dana Crawford. She went on to develop other historic properties in the city, including the Oxford Hotel, Union Station, and the Flour Mill Lofts, where she now lives. It's where we went to catch up with Crawford, who's working on new preservation projects around the state. She's also speaking out against a plan to build two new towers on Larimer Square. As we were setting up, Crawford recalled her quest decades ago to preserve the flour mill building. I thought this building was just stunning. And most everybody thought I was insane. And the neighbors all called this a see-through building, and they wanted it torn down. See-through as in it looked bombed out. But Crawford managed to convince city leaders and investors that the building was worth saving and converting into lofts. We were a little bit under construction, but no glass was in the windows. And the trains go by, you know, 25 feet from here. So two of my four sons are sitting up here, and the train goes by, and it sounds like an atomic bomb. Because we have double glazing now, and there's a train going by right now, a big coal train, but you can't hear it. (laughs) Anyway, so... Peter says to his younger brother, she's really lost at this time. (laughs) Well, sitting at her dining room table, I asked Dana Crawford about the future of Larimer Square just a few blocks away. Jeff Hermanson announced this proposal. He's CEO of Larimer Associates, which owns the block. The idea was to add two new multi-story buildings, one with affordable housing. Uh, But it would mean the partial demolition of several old buildings, What do you believe is wrong with the plan? Well, I have to say that when I first saw it, I was intrigued. However, when I began to study it, and I realized that one of the high-rise buildings was to be 40 stories high, and it would involve being superimposed over one of the most important historic buildings, the Sussex, it would have darkened all of Larimer Square, practically, And one of my favorite times of year is when the kids come down in the spring, in the third grade and fourth grade when they study Colorado history, and they can actually see and feel a commercial district from around the turn of the last century. A pretty low-slung one. Yeah, and the world was low-slung then. And so they have an opportunity to really understand and feel what their community came from. So that would be ended. I think that many of the tenants that have been there a long time would not be able to remain. Uh, As you mentioned, the demolition of part of the buildings. So in Larimer Square, present-day defense, what they're trying to do is figure out how to finance the ongoing maintenance of those buildings. And here comes a train, by the way. Yes. Um, So... That was, I think, the thinking behind building these two new buildings and getting income from them to finance the improvements or rehabilitation. From my perspective, and now since I've talked to so many people about it, from a lot of perspectives, it not only kills Larimer Square, but it also threatens everything that we've worked on all these years to get the character maintained throughout this city. Uh, because if they do that to Larimer Square, then it opens up the political gates to change everything. I mean, the plan came under heavy criticism, as I think you're reflecting there, from preservationists, including the National Trust for Historic Preservation, 
which put Larimer Square on its list of America's 11 most endangered historic places. I'll say the owners have put the plan on hold, but they say Larimer Square's buildings need significant rehabilitation. Is it possible to do that without changing Larimer Square's character? Absolutely, yes. It's been done all over the country. Charleston, South Carolina, Philadelphia, Boston, buildings much older than ours. So it can be done. Originally, there was no public money in Larimer Square whatsoever. But there's some public funds that could go into maintaining Larimer Square. And, you know, they've appointed a committee of 50 people. We've had two meetings. We're supposed to have four meetings. We've made no decisions so far because we've just been told, told, told. I think if um, we're ever given a chance to advise that we could come up with some good ideas for the future of the square. I think there are some who would just be perplexed by the idea that Larimer Square could be fundamentally changed at all if it's on a register. Help me understand that. Well, the kind of tragic thing in a way is 50% of the buildings that have been placed on the National Register have been demolished. Uh, There's no protection for them. There is protection usually in local landmarking, and Larimer Square is a local landmark. And I should point out that Denver City Council President Albus Brooks told the Denver Post, tearing down any historic building is dead on arrival. And uh, he added, revitalization and preservation can coexist. That is exactly correct. I, I do want to move the conversation beyond Denver and talk about some of your current projects. Why don't we start with the historic Argo Mine and Mill in Idaho Springs, And I visited the mine earlier this year and met two of your partners. Let's listen. All right, you've got these iconic red buildings you can see from I-70. And what's your hope for the place? I always feel Idaho Springs has been an ignored town. I feel like the Argo Mill has been an ignored, amazing, historic site. And we immediately said we need 900 hotel rooms, we need 600 housing units in in less than a 10-mile radius, so this should be doable. Dana Crawford, what on earth attracted you to an old mine on an EPA Superfund site? Well, the view of the uh, mill, the big red building that says Argo Mill on the hillside that you drive by and you just keep wondering, what is that? Hmm. I should go up and look at it uh, because it's the epitome of a landmark and that it could really make a big difference to, you know, demonstrate the history of Colorado during a very, very dramatic time in our growth. So I went up, and the numbers that you have are really greatly exaggerated. Maybe not that scale. No 900 units. But I could visualize what could happen, and so I signed on. You could visualize what would happen. What do you envision? Well, I think that we have shared vision with the ownership and, and with a lot of the people. There are only 1,700 people that live in Idaho yeah. Springs. We know that there's a big demand for housing on the Front Range. So down at the east end, we can see kind of an Italian hill town. An Italian and, hill town, the kind of thing I might see in like under a Tuscan sun. Exactly. Okay. You know what that's about. Uh-huh. And then on the west end we could do some more affordable units 
that also would be stacked on the hill. Because this is an area that's really desperate for workforce housing, teachers, police officers. Well, and people in the restaurant business and the hotel industry. So then you've got Clear Creek running through, turning the waterway into a landscaped area. And along that site, we'd have a, a base camp, sort of with the retail and a restaurant. And then there has been discussion about a hotel. And for a long time, we talked about how were we going to get up there. But now we're talking about a gondola to an area that the city owns 500 acres up there, where they have a massive plan for a huge outdoor recreation facility. Mountain biking, hiking, 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 all of those things. And so how far along is this project? The gondola could be realized within a year. Uh, The housing probably could be realized within two or three years. The hotel, if it's decided finally to have it there, is probably 10 years. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with the developer and historic preservationist Dana Crawford, not just about her continued vision for Denver, but for projects now all around the state. In Pueblo, you're part of a group looking to redevelop a historic power plant. But south of Pueblo in Trinidad, I want to talk about the project you're involved in called La Puerta de Colorado, or the the gateway to Colorado. It's obviously not far from the New Mexico line. Talk just a bit about this project. And and I'll say right next to us is this beautiful old map of Trinidad. Well, it's very unfortunate that so many people who are traveling south to Santa Fe don't have the opportunity to stop long enough to drive around in the streets of Trinidad, which are packed with great architecture. Great brick buildings, right? Great brick buildings. Uh, And it's very urban in nature because during the days of the coal mining, It used to be a much larger city. It's in the process of becoming not motivated by industry or oil or coal, but by the fact that artists are being very attracted to move there. And furthermore, more people are being attracted because it's gorgeous land, stunning city. You can feel the energy when you get there. What do you see as the potential for Trinidad? Well, it is becoming an artist's hub. Maybe hub is the word. They have so many assets. They have a wonderful river. They have the rolling country. They have the view of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains. They're right on a major thoroughfare. They have a major thoroughfare. They have a railroad track that the government's now trying to shut down. But it's been there for many, many years. We have two trains a day. There's an historic theater there, which we're in the process of reclaiming. Seats 1,200 people, has perfect acoustics, was designed by two brothers who went there early on in the last century, the Rapp brothers, who were responsible for 80 buildings, all the civic buildings, all the churches, all the schools, many of the big homes, and a lot of the buildings downtown. I understand that you found Trinidad so charming and have so much promise that you bought several old buildings downtown. Tell me the story of what happened in the bathroom of one of them. (laughs) Well, 
on Commercial Street, which was a very important street in the evolution of Trinidad in its early days. Its name says it all, Commercial and Street. A, and so one of the main buildings was originally called the Trinidad Hotel. And later on, somebody put in the Trinidad Lounge, which was a very popular bar. And when the people decided not to be in the bar business anymore, they just walked out. So this bar is intact. I mean, there's still straws on the bar and oh booze gosh. in the basement. And, and we, could ha- we could do a movie there tomorrow. I mean, it's just... Frozen in time. I, I know Humphrey Bogart's just going to pop out any minute. <laughs> but anyway, I didn't go into the men's room when I bought it. And later on, I took a tour down there from Denver because we're forming a club called the 190 Club because we're 190 miles from Denver and 190 miles from Santa Fe. And I thought we'd get creative people from both of those places and go to Trinidad and have a good time. So I didn't go to the men's room, but one of the tours, the 190 Club, went in and they all came out laughing because they're a lot of pornographic tile in there. And they took pictures of the pornographic tile. So then then I saw it. It's kind of like Pompeii. And um, (laughs) so um, now when I take tours through there, everybody wants to go into the men's room. So I say, fine, it's part of the tour. Governor Hickenlooper recently honored you with a citizenship medal for your contributions to the state. You are still going strong at age 87. But when you look back on your life, your career, how do you see the impact you've had? Well, that thing came out of the blue. I mean, I was in a meeting one morning, and the telephone rang and said, it's John Hickenlooper, whom I've known, of course, for years. And I had no idea what he might want. And so then he told me. I thought, this is cool. <laughs> And I'm very grateful that the award's coming, and I've been thinking about my speech. Yeah, I And wonder... I do like to make people laugh, uh-huh. so it should be hilarious. It should be hilarious. And, and do you think you'll reflect on the impact you've had? What might you say? It's always teamwork, you know. It is always teamwork, and I do love teamwork. But, um, I mean, it's interesting. When I ask about your impact, you're quick to point to team. Well, that's true. I've had a fun life. I've had a great life. I have been blessed with a certain amount of vision. I come from a family that has a lot of obsessions. I got obsessed by an idea. That's all there is to it. There is such tension in Colorado right now around growth and congestion. And I got here first. And why are all these other people moving here? And I miss the old Denver, and my favorite places are closing, and what happened to this block? I think there's as much of that as there is excitement and hope and energy about all that's new and growing. Will you talk to the people for whom the growth is unsettling, and who think, now Dana Crawford's going to bring this to Trinidad, now she's going to bring it to Idaho Springs, now she's going to bring it to Pueblo? Well, you know, that would be a massive exaggeration. Because I didn't create what you're looking at the window here. We're looking out at uh, Coors Field and Lodo and downtown. I mean, that that was a lot of people. And a lot of those roots were already there when I got here in the middle of 50s. So, I mean, I'm not responsible for these things. But Speak to that malaise, though. Well, it's human nature to resist change. 
It's just human nature. Now, some people are very positive thinkers, and some people kind of thrive on complaining. One of the things I like to do in a new community is try to reach a shared vision about the future. And we use the power of 10. 10 of the most important ideas for the long term and 10 of the ideas that can be done in the short term. And it's a very, very important exercise for the naysayers and the cheerful people to go through. And it's going to happen no matter what we have to say about it. And so if we want to maintain our quality of life and leave something important for future generations, we have to get to work. Thanks for having us in your home. Thank you. Dana Crawford is a longtime Denver developer and preservationist. Last month, she celebrated her 87th birthday. And indeed, Governor Hickenlooper recently honored her with a citizenship medal for her contributions to the state. An update now on a cold case we told you about earlier this week. Investigators here have charged an inmate in Nevada with killing a woman and a family of three in Aurora and Lakewood, respectively, more than 30 years ago. Law enforcement officials announced this morning that Alexander Christopher Ewing is being transferred from a Nevada prison to face charges in the 1984 slayings of Patricia Louise Smith in Lakewood, as well as the three members of the Bennett family in Aurora. All right, this week, Niwot-based shoemaker Crocs announced it will close its last two manufacturing facilities, and its chief financial officer, Carrie Tefner, resigned. Furthermore, by the end of the year, the company will have closed a third of its brick-and-mortar stores. Does this signal a company struggling to stay afloat, or one that's evolving to meet changes in the retail world? Katie Abel is an editor at Footwear News. Hi, Katie. Hi, great to be here. You say the company isn't in trouble, but the headlines don't make it seem that way. Help square this for us. I think Crocs is one of those companies that really um, elicits so much much conversation. Um, We've seen just this week on social media so much talk about them. Um, And I think that... The headlines um, from a lot of major media companies were actually a bit deceiving. While they closed company-owned manufacturing facilities, um, they still produce the bulk of their collection um, in Asia and will continue doing that. Um, So I think that really set off a lot of alarm bells, but it's really not a huge um, story for them. Ah, uh, there's been some misinformation, indeed, circulating online about Crocs going out of business, that people are confounding that with this news about its own production facilities. What does it mean that they're closing their own plants? Um, I think in the footwear industry, um, very few companies actually own their factories. Huh. Um, Crocs did. Um, own, you know, two of them. But again, it wasn't for the bulk of their production. So I think what it means is that they're simplifying their business a little bit as they go through this transformation. Um, And it's actually a way to help them sort of cut costs further 
as they really um, take their next steps. Is that what closing the brick and mortar stories is about as well? Maybe focusing more on online sales? Exactly. Um, You know, it's no secret the retail climate is really difficult right now. Brick and mortar is challenging for everyone. Um, Crocs did have hundreds of stores. It's closing its underperforming locations to really strengthen the fleet. Um, And then digital is a big opportunity for them. They've actually found a lot of success there recently. So that's something they're really focusing on right now, um, you know, to really encourage consumers to shop with them online. So from your perspective, Crocs is making a smart business move rather than, say, trying to stop the bleeding. Definitely. I mean, I think Crocs is a company that um, obviously has a very specific product. Um, So it's always going to have its share of challenges. I mean, it's classic clog silhouette. Um, You know, there might not be a a ton of demand for that always, but they've expanded into sandals and some other categories that's helping them evolve. Um, And then there are also those loyal customers who are always going to love you know, Crocs and the clog. And so I think they still have that base as well. I was just going to ask you what space Crocs occupies in shoe wear. And maybe I should be transparent that I own a pair of Crocs and no one can believe they're Crocs because they're not the classic (laughs) clog. Uh, what, What space do they occupy? And I suppose is that evolving? It's definitely evolving. I mean, they're definitely known as as a comfort player. Um, and I think that people love to make fun of them. <laughs> but they've, um, you know, again, people, some people still really do love those original, you know, what some people term ugly shoes. Um, and I think people are surprised that they've been able to expand into th- these new areas with some styles that don't look clunky or ugly. Um, perhaps your pair is, is a bit more fashionable than what people think of when they think of the brand. Maybe I'll tweet them and we can let listeners decide. Uh, has, <laughs> has Crocs made missteps? Definitely. I mean, I think, you know, with any company in our space that's evolving, um, it it's you can really encounter some challenges in this climate. I definitely think they probably expanded too much into brick-and-mortar retail Mm. um, at the beginning, and that's what they're trying to correct now. Um, And I think, you know, over the years, they've obviously, you know, had trouble with inventory levels and and sort of um, figuring out what the demand is. Um, That being said, I think that in the past I would say two years, they've taken some notable steps to get back on track with both their core business and then speaking to a new audience through some fun fashion collaborations um, that really surprised people and got people talking. Is Crocs a patented shoe or do shoes tend to be patented? It is. There um, have been some cases. Um, they're currently... Um, still, I believe, in litigation over their trademark patent. Huh. Um, so that's something that they're they're working on as well to make sure that that's protected. Um, but th- there are still some sort of undecided legal cases there. With the idea that if it's not protected, someone could come out with the 
crock that's full of crock, I guess. <laughs> okay. We'll, but that's the fear. Right. I mean, you know, in the fashion industry, knockoffs are something that's quite common. Um, it has been an issue for Crocs and many other companies um, as well. But I think their name is highly recognizable and people really gravitate um, toward that if that's what they're looking for. Katie, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Katie Abel. She's an editor with Footwear News, talking about the ups and downs of Crocs based in Niwot, Colorado. When we come back, what's in the name Rose? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Anti-Semitism didn't stop a high school dropout from becoming the highest-ranking Jewish officer in the U.S. Army during World War II. You might recognize his name, Major General Maurice Rose. He became one of Denver's biggest hospitals. uh, That is, one of Denver's biggest hospitals is named after him. Rose led the 3rd Armored Division, known as Spearhead. He was killed on the battlefield in the final weeks of the war. Marshall Fogel of Denver has written a new book about Rose, and welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me to CPR. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Why was the 3rd Armored Division, which he led, uh, known as Spearhead? Because Rose decided to name the 3rd Armored Division Spearhead once he gained uh, the position of Major General over the 3rd Armored Division. Spearhead meaning the tip of the spear. And they are the first into battle. The first into battle. And what does that mean in terms of how they're equipped and what they faced? They're equipped with uh, tanks, artillery. If you stretch the 3rd Armored Division, which is known as a heavy armored division, in one straight line, it would go for 10 miles. Oh, my goodness. So it's sizable and it's armored. Yes, there's only two heavy armor divisions in World War II in Europe, the 3rd and the 2nd. Being assigned to being the, the head of the 3rd Armor Division was the most prestigious award given to a soldier. Eisenhower was looking for a fighter, just like Lincoln was looking for Grant. And Eisenhower found the best field commander in the war, General Maurice Rose. Maurice Rose, uh, who was essentially then a tank commander. How did he do that differently from others? He fought from the front. The men respected him. Uh, He always dressed in a cavalry outfit. He was immaculate. So they called him the immaculate killer of Nazis. He was relentless in pursuing the enemy. And the men respected him because he took the same risks as they did in war. That was unusual to have someone so high ranking be that far forward. One soldier reported to me when he first saw General Rose coming into battle, he said, I thought Caesar was riding six in a chariot with six white horses. They loved him. They donated $35,000 to build Rose Hospital, the men of the 3rd Armored Division, after Rose was killed. He led many wartime assaults. Uh, The Battle of Carrington in France, shortly after the D-Day invasion, that was really a turning point for him, wasn't it? There were, there were some significant battles. Carrington was between Omaha and Utah Beach. It was uh, uh, captured from the Germans by the Airborne Division, who was trapped. Rose led his soldiers into Carrington, stopped the counterattack. German papers later said that had Rose not taken Carrington, they could have rolled up Normandy. 
Secondly, in Operation Cobra to get out of the uh, French force, Rose broke the defenses of the 7th Army, saved Patton's uh, uh, supply lines, and that's when Eisenhower said, we found our grant. We got the, the right guy, the best field commander in the war. That is truly when he proved himself. What was the mission on that um, he was killed in? He was killed in, at Parrington. Uh, he drove his forces 100 miles in a 24-hour period, which is a record that stands to this day to surround the, the pocket where the Ruhr Industries was located and 325,000 Nazis. Uh, Rose was killed leading his troops into battle to capture Paderborn, Germany in uh, March 30th, 1945. What do you know specifically about how he died? I'm sorry? What do you know specifically about how he died? How he died specifically? Yeah. He, uh, he was looking for his troops, and it was dusk, and he uh, was trapped, and he wanted to get around in his Jeep some Tiger tanks, uh, which were uh, the part of the Nazi forces. They trapped him between a plum tree and a tank, got out of his Jeep, put his hands up, and he was killed for, uh, with 14 bullets in his body. Some people believe to this day he was murdered as a prisoner of war. If that's true, then he's the highest-ranking commander in World War II to be killed in war and combat as a POW. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about Major General Maurice Rose, for whom Rose Medical Center is named. There's a new book about Rose written by Marshall Fogel of Denver, who joins us. Rose wasn't a West Point graduate. How did his military career take shape? He's truly uh, an inspiration, and any educator that reads his book ought to tell his students or uh, uh, her students how you can make it in life. Rose dropped out of East Denver High School. He never graduated high school, ran away from home, joined the military. His mother had to go get him. And then finally, at the age of 17, they, his parents, uh, Rabbi Rose and his mother, allowed him to go to war. He was wounded in France, left the army, and went back. And reason Rose was a handsome man, six foot three. Uh, I don't know if I, the book would have sold if he didn't look like Cary Grant. <laughs> <laughs> you have a photo of him on the cover. Uh, yes, and so to make the long story short, uh, he went to war colleges nine years out of the 20 years from 1920 to 1940, and he became uh, a star pupil. He learned how to fight. He learned how to win a war. He learned how to win over uh, the people that he... Uh, commanded, and he was a darling of, of the generals that saw him in action. Do you think he was insecure about his education? I think he was driven to be educated, so he probably had probably preceded the fact he was insecure. He never went to West Point, and that, right. that's amazing that he, he just uh, learned how to fight. What was it like for Jews in the military during Rose's time? It was as bad as you can imagine. The 1920s, we had Henry Ford, a, a rabid anti-Semite, George Patton, a rabid anti-Semite, uh, uh, Father Coughlin, the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, anti-Semitism was rampant. And in 1918, the uh, government formed the Secret Military Intelligence Division, which uh, wasn't made declassified until the 70s, keeping 
Aryans in the service and keeping Jews and other minorities out. They taught social Darwinism. Rose had to overcome. Boy, did he have to overcome. What were some of the things he had to overcome? What stories stand out in your mind? Being a Jew. uh, uh, It was undesirable. uh, The army did not want any Jews in the army. Uh, he, He kept it underneath. His personal goal was to be a great soldier, but he, he he was a, a nominal Jew. He wasn't a practicing Jew, though he was a bar mitzvah early in life. He spoke Yiddish, uh, knew the Torah, knew the five books of Moses. But uh, that's what makes the story so great. Well, I think what's also fascinating about this time is that in, in World War II, you obviously have the U.S. fighting you know, rampant anti-Semitism in the form of Nazism. And yet, as a Jew in the armed forces, he's both fighting Nazis, but also fighting anti-Semitism, I guess, within his own country, his own ranks, though though in a different form. It's almost as God gave you the answer. The first soldier to move into Germany in World War II to break the German border, capture the first German town, fight down... uh, uh, shoot down a German airplane was the Jewish general Maurice Rose. How biblical is that? How biblical is that? <laughs> Denver's Jewish community chose to honor him by naming the hospital after him. And I think you said that his fellow soldiers rallied to help make that happen. Why was it decided that this should be the route to honor him? Because he was, a, first of all, he's the first real Jewish national hero. His death was. Uh, was so uh, bereaved by uh, General Marshall Eisenhower, the President of the United States. All the newspapers reported it, and they felt that a naming it in honor of a Jewish war hero would uh, grant the hospital national publicity to raise money to build this hospital, which is the first to allow a black doctor on the staff. And so there's a legacy here that's important to our Colorado community. Do you remember what year that was? Yes. Uh, after they built the hospital, uh, there was a black leader named Sonny Lawson in Five Points, Denver, that brought Dr. Edmund Knoll to Denver, and the hospital waived uh, the the privilege of having to be honored by Denver Medical Society. You had to get in that first. Blacks were not allowed. Huh. Rose Hospital waived it. Edmund Knoll became the first black doctor, and his wife, Rachel, was the first elected official in Colorado to be elected to office on the school board in Denver in 1965. 1965. And when, when did he become doctor? Uh, he was a doctor in the war, Dr. Knoll, and at about 1940. Eight, when the hospital opened, Edwin Knoll was the first black doctor on the staff of any <laughs> hospital in Denver. Not everyone in the Denver Jewish community agreed with naming the hospital for Rose, I understand, because there were some who believed he'd converted to Christianity. Can, can you, will you clear that up for us? Yes, and the book addresses it. Uh, there was a concern because there First, initially, it was a star of David on—first, uh, there was a cross on the grave in Germany. And then two Jewish chaplains, chaplains went out, pulled the cross up, put down a star of David, and a picture of that's in the book. Then he, uh, Rose goes to Montgrat in the Netherlands, and he's going to be buried as a Jew. But his wife, who was Episcopalian, was treated very poorly by the Denver community. And said, at one point, she said, I want him in Arlington with a cross on his grave. Ultimately— the answer is Rose never converted. 
but there were pressures all around him and his family, as you note. Marshall, thanks for sharing this story with us. I won't drive by Rose Hospital the same way again. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it. Marshall Fogel's new book is Major General Maurice Rose, the most decorated battle tank commander in U.S. military history. Still to come, the life and legend of Rattlesnake Kate. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. One hundred forty rattlesnakes. That's how many Kate McHale reportedly killed near Greeley in 1925. Now, this story made national news and earned her the name Rattlesnake Kate. It has also inspired new music from a member of the Denver band, the Lumineers. She saw just one snake, then two, then ten, pulled out a twenty-two rifle, and the massacre began. Before too long, she had no bullets left. Grabbed a sign right out of the ground and clobbered them to death. This is Neela Pekarik, and she's here to share some of this new music before you can hear it anywhere else. The album is called Rattlesnake, a nod to what happened to this infamous Kate McHale that day. Welcome to the program, Neela. Thanks for having me. This is a treat. She later used the name Kate Slaughterback, so you might hear that in this conversation. Walk us through this actual event. It sounds pretty dramatic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, indeed. Um, Yeah, so October 28th, 1925, she was out with her son, who was three years old. They were on horseback and uh, gathering these wounded ducks to bring home for dinner and encountered this rattlesnake migration. Um, and I, you know, I picture this three-year-old, which they're, they're pretty mobile at that age, and she's got him just 60 feet away. And I think that maternal instinct just kicked in, and she started killing as many snakes as possible. And it took her two hours, but she walked away fine and dandy and <laughs> collected the skins and then fashioned herself a dress from the dead snakes. I never thought of the terror of a herd of snakes until now, so thank you for that. Indeed. How much of the rattlesnake story is true? I mean, it sounds almost mythical. Sure. I mean, it's her, her word against anyone else's. She was, she was there by herself that day. But um, the dress you can still see in the Greeley Museum, so there's at least proof of that. Okay, the dress <laughs> exists. Yes. This is something that you would hope to dawn someday. I guess that's just not possible. <laughs> it looks very fragile. They keep it in the dark in a, in a case, and then you can press a button to see it. But um, I, uh, I was fortunate enough, my mom's neighbor is a costume designer for the Boulder Dinner Theater, and she made me a faux rattlesnake dress. A to faux wear, rattlesnake yeah, dress. For my uh, live performances. <laughs> so rattlesnake 
Kate is somewhat of a folk legend in northern Colorado. Mm -hmm. How did you discover her story and and how did you work to verify as much as you could about it? Yeah, um, so I was a student up at the University of Northern Colorado and uh, Greeley isn't exactly the college town that maybe Boulder is or Fort Collins. And so you have to get creative how to stay entertained. And so my roommate at the time and I, we got really into Greeley's history and we went to the Greeley History Museum and they have a lot of preserved old homes from the founders of Greeley and that type of thing. And came across this story and just became obsessed with this woman. (laughs) And wasn't quite sure how to channel that at first. Um, But being a musician, I thought something musical was going to happen out of it. But it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I really dove in um, and started writing these songs. Uh, And I made multiple trips up to the museum where they have all of her kind of a collection of her belongings um, that you can you can peek through and to wear these gloves because it's all very uh, fragile and um, so I just went up a bunch of times and and researched that way and there were newspaper accounts mm-hmm. of this encounter indeed and yeah like you said it's sort of uh, folklore in, in Greeley so um, and you know 1925 wasn't terribly long ago so I think there there were some people around that um, the, the story had been passed on so <laughs> what did you learn about Kate McHale other than the fact that she killed 140 rattlesnakes? There's, what kind of a person was she? With? Yeah, there's so much to her life, um, many layers. And so what drew me in was the, the snake attack. But then going through her materials, um, she had a 40-year love letter correspondence with this colonel who lived in Iowa. And he wrote about her story in his local paper and wrote her what was essentially a fan letter and thus blossom this exchange of, of letters back and forth, and they never met. Um, but within those letters, I learned a ton about her life, and it was cool to read it from her perspective. And so, um, you know, she ran her own farm. She was married and divorced six times. She built her own farmhouse and lived in a chicken coop while she did it. Um, she was a nurse and often provided kind of the only medical assistance in her rural area. Um, there was a lot. <laughs> This track is called Train Song, and I understand that you approached it with musical theater in mind. Indeed. I, uh, I love musicals, <laughs> and um, actually went to school initially for musical theater before getting a music education degree. Um, but I think the story, you know, it really lent itself to that type of music, and it's music that I love. Um, but this sort of felt like a big opening number of wide-eyed and ready, ready for the next step in life. And she was ready for that? Um, in my perspective, yeah, I think she had a lot of hopes and dreams of, of leaving Colorado, of doing a lot more with her life. Um, and she uh, she lived in El Paso for a short period of time, but otherwise she didn't spend much time away from Colorado. Um, but, I, you know, and this this is also kind of a new journey for me and a new a new step in my life. And so I felt like it's almost my my opening number as well in ways. That is not just being a part of the Lumineers, but doing a solo album. And it's it's a big deal to commit to a full album about really one person. 
Indeed, yeah. And I, I think it wasn't always the plan. I, I wrote the attack first, just kind of as more of a joke. I was kind of joking around. And this then, was about the snake attack. And uh, quickly stopped joking um, about it. But I think once I did find those letters and, and so much more to her life, it, it, the songs just kind of poured out from there. I want to go back to this love letter question. Sure. Which shows up, this, this long-distance love affair in Kate McHale's Life. Tell me more about it. Who who was he? Yeah. So, uh, Curl, uh, his uh, name was he was a colonel, uh, Charles D. Randolph, and I called himself Buckskin Bill. I think because she had a cool name like Rattlesnake Kate, he wanted one too. <laughs> oh, so he adopted. Okay, this yeah. is this is not one you assigned him. Got right. It. And in fact, there's another Buckskin Bill that is not the same person, and so I don't know if he borrowed it from him. He was also a big fan of Buffalo Bill and really modeled himself after him. Um, but yeah, they. He, he promises over and over to come visit. And at one point he gets married and encourages her to continue writing the letters, but to send them to a P.O. box so his wife doesn't get upset. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, the perspective of Buckskin Bill appears on this album. It sure does. Thanks to a male vocalist. I know, I know I'm a scoundrel. Listening to Colorado Matters, I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Neela Pekarik of the Lumineers, who's embarking on a solo project about this incredible woman in Colorado history, Kate McHale, also known as Kate Slaughterback. She was introduced to the story when she heard about how Kate killed 140 rattlesnakes near Greeley in 1925, but uncovered so much more about her life, including her love life. So this song, Scoundrel, is based in history, and yet you use the word like mansplain. <laughs> it's so it's so modern in that regard. Certainly. You didn't find that in the letters, <laughs> I'm guessing. I sure didn't. And I think a lot of these songs um, aren't necessarily a history lesson um, fully. There's there's some history in it, but I think it's all through my perspective of what I, I took from it when I read them. Okay, so there's a little bit of history and then a little bit of your literary imagination. Sure. I'd like to have you set up another track for us called Perfect Gown. Yeah, I thought there was something very symbolic and even a little heartbreaking um, that she did have this full life with so many layers and this kind of souvenir left behind was something she wore. And it's kind of how she's remembered as something very sort of superficial. Um, We're talking about the snake skin coat dress. dress. Yes, indeed. Um, And I understand why that's that's left behind uh, (laughs) because it's so interesting. However, um, it's just a a bigger idea of, you know, being kind of summed up by the way you look. And, um, you know, I've experienced that a lot being in the industry that I'm in, that sometimes my male counterparts don't experience the same same things I do. Um, as far as, you know, trying to negotiate something, um, a quick anecdote, I, I was in a meeting trying to talk about tour dates and our schedule was crazy. And, you know, I was struggling a little bit mentally and physically. And I, I said, you know, I'd love to have less on the schedule or whatever. And the person said, well, I think you know, you can buy all these pretty dresses if you keep doing this, which felt so belittling and condescending to me. Because you were talking about your health, your, exactly. your mental health, and the idea was, but a pretty dress will solve it. Right, exactly. And oh. I think, you know, a lot of people are summed up by the way they look on the outside. So this is kind of that idea in that song.
What did you say to that person who said, but you can get so many pretty dresses? Honestly, it sort of just shut me down and I felt so uncomfortable in what I was wearing at the time and just felt like I have to I have to be aware of that, um, you know, and I'm, which again, I don't think my male counterparts feel that way where they don't, it doesn't matter what they wear when they go into a meeting. Nila Pekarik talking with me about her new solo project, Rattlesnake. The Denver Center for the Performing Arts has commissioned a stage adaptation using her music. Pekarik performs some of the songs from Rattlesnake at Chautauqua Auditorium in Boulder tonight. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs>